0: Good morning. Good morning. I believe in the grace of God. Got me and my bad knee up those steps. It's good to be here this morning to open God's Word with you. As Josh said, today we begin a study in the book of Daniel. We're going to be considering chapter 1. But before we do, a little bit of introductory material, a little outline of the book, kind of give you an idea of where we'll be going in the next 10 or 12 weeks. Start with the name Daniel. The name itself means that God is my judge. And one of the most interesting things about Daniel is that if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will not find one negative word about this man. He is spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel. He's spoken of by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the author of this book. That's according to the Jewish Talmud and also according to our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Matthew chapter 24 verse 15 Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So that's all we need to know about the authorship. The Lord Jesus said it we believe it. Daniel wrote it. Now it has been criticized. Some have said it was written in the 2nd century BC not in the 6th century, as the dates in the book say. But they made some erroneous assumptions, the most important one being that it's not possible to predict events ahead of time, that prophecy, such intricate detail as what's recorded in this book is not possible. They must have already reviewed these events and written this after the fact. Not so. They also criticized the use of Aramaic as opposed to Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 will be written in the Aramaic language, not the Hebrew language. They thought there were historical inaccuracies in the book. 20th century archaeology has proved there are none. So we're going to assume that this book was written in the 6th century B.C., just like it says, chapter 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He reigned from 609 to 598 B.C. So we're going to assume that's correct. Daniel himself was taken captive to Babylon about 605 B.C. It's estimated he was around 16 years of age at that time. He lived to approximately 536 B.C., a period of about 70 years. He saw the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, and he lived long enough to see Cyrus of Persia's decree that the Jews could return and rebuild Jerusalem. So he lived through that entire period in Babylon. Just a brief outline of the book. Chapter 1, we get some history and introduction of the major characters. King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, the Babylonian king who conquered Judah, took the southern kingdom captive. Daniel himself, we've already talked about him. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, <laughs> and Abednego, otherwise known as Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, their Hebrew names. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Chapters 2 through 7, we're going to read Daniel's prophecy <clears throat> about the nations, that there will be four kingdoms, false worship, that the Lord God pulls down kings and raises up kings. We'll read about God's wrath against the nations, the nations' attempt to destroy God's people. And read about one called the Ancient of Days. Chapters 8 through 12. Prophecies for the future of the nation of Israel. The rise of the Antichrist in chapter 8. The prophecy of 70 weeks. The all-important timetable for God's program in chapter 9. And the future for Israel in chapters 10 through 12 before we get into chapter 1, I'd also mention that the events in Daniel are not recorded in chronological order. So when you study this book, you want to be careful to pay attention to the dates given at the beginning of the chapter. Like in chapter 1, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. We can look at secular history and date that pretty precisely. Same thing with chapter 2, the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We can date that pretty well too. Just to give you an example of something that's out of order, at the end of chapter 5, last verse in chapter 5, you read, That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Okay, so after we read about the handwriting on the wall, the desecration of the temple vessels and everything in chapter 5, then you get to chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, it begins in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So when you look at those two things, you realize that chapter 7's events are approximately 14 years before the events described in chapter 5. Again, we can date those things pretty closely with secular history. So we know that it's important to pay attention to those dates. When you're studying chapter 5, realize that Daniel has already seen the vision that's described in chapter 7 when you're reading chapter 5. okay. So that can help you interpret these things. You can get very confused if you think they follow one after another in the order that the chapters are. So that's a little bit of background for the book. Now let's read through chapter 1, and then we'll take it apart a few verses at a time. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be examined before you, and the countenances of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenance appeared better and fatter in flesh, than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding, about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. So as we start off here, as I noted previously, God has dated this book the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And it starts out by saying, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah. One of the things you're going to notice as we go through this book, in each chapter, there will be at at least one statement that identifies God as the one controlling events. It's, become fairly obvious throughout the book that God is doing the work and Daniel is just recording what God is doing. Now we read as in the custom of the day that the conquerors looted the temple. They took the vessels that were used and this was pretty common because the most valuable things in a culture the gold, the silver, the precious stones, will usually be found in the temple of their god. Um, And this was a custom in the ancient world. Uh, If you ever get to Rome, you go to the Forum, you'll see a carving on the Arch of Titus. And one of the things you'll notice is in this parade where they're parading the conquered people through Rome, you'll see in that carving the menorah from Israel's temple because they took it. That's what the conquerors did. Now those vessels were taken to the land of Shinar. That's an interesting place. People tried to reach God by building a tower in the plain of Shinar. And God came down and confused their language, stopped their effort, because of course you can't build a tower to reach up to God. In Zechariah chapter 5, you have this vision of a woman in a basket. And the lead cover slams down on top of the woman. It says, this is wickedness. And where does that basket end up? In the land of Shinar. But God brings those vessels back. We can read in Ezra chapter 1 that they will come back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. And God promised also to recover a remnant of his people from the land of Shinar. We can read about that in Isaiah chapter 11. So you see that even though the conquerors took, God would restore. We get to verse 3. Now like most people with power... Nebuchadnezzar took what he wanted. He took the young men. He wanted the young, not the old. He wanted those of royal descent. He wanted those who had been educated. He wanted those who understood the workings of the natural world. He wanted the best of the best. And then once he got them, his goal was a simple one. He wanted to indoctrinate them in the culture of the Chaldeans. He wanted to wring out of them everything Jewish and make them Babylonian. So to do that, he offered them a comfortable life, good accommodations, good food, fine wine, everything this world had to offer. What better way to win them over than to just give them all the things of the world? We see that today (laughs) in a lot of things. You know, it's it's very easy even for Christians to fall into that trap where we enjoy so many of this world's things. We enjoy comfort. But we should remember that it all comes from God. All comes from Him. And then we talk about the names. Well, what's in a name anyway? Why is that important? Well, as we've already seen, Daniel means God is my judge. And they changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel is one of the Babylonian false gods. How about Hananiah? It means Yahweh is gracious. Changed to Shadrach. Command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of the Babylons. Mishael, his name in Hebrew means who is what God is. was changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Again, a false god. Azariah, it means whom Yahweh helps. Changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, Notice each one of the Hebrew names contains a name to the one true God. And each one of the Babylonian names refers to a Babylonian pagan God. In this culture, names mattered a great deal. Your name told you a lot about someone. And while we're talking about names, Nebuchadnezzar means... Debo protect my frontier. Another reference to one of their false gods. We come to chapter 8 and we begin to see Daniel's character. Chapter 8, verse 8. I'm sorry. Verse 8. Daniel knew what he believed and why he believed it. His worldview was already set. Even though he was a captive, he was determined to retain his Jewish faith and his beliefs. It was the total opposite of go along to get along. But Daniel also chose his battles carefully. He was fully aware that an all-out refusal to cooperate with anything would be problematic probably futile, maybe even result in death. Remember, Daniel wrote the words, and the Lord gave in verse 1. I believe Daniel knew he was where God wanted him. We know from later chapters that Daniel was familiar with Jeremiah's prophecies. He knew that the captivity would last for 70 years, because he read that in Jeremiah. You also read this in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So the Lord had sent them into exile. Daniel understood that. And Daniel actually became one of the senior statesmen, and lasted through multiple kings. He truly followed his God, but he also realized he was where God had put him. Now his request when he took his stand was a simple one. He didn't want to defile himself with the king's food and wine. Now that was not a really a physical or a moral problem, the Bible does not forbid food or drink on any kind of moral grounds. This food may have been offered to idols. It's almost certain that it was not killed in a kosher Jewish way according to Jewish dietary laws. Daniel, What Daniel was doing was refusing to be ceremonially or religiously defiled by consuming food that did not meet God's requirements. And he sought this permission from the chief of the eunuchs, or the commander of the officials, some translators have. He wanted to retain as much of his Jewish heritage as he could. As further evidence that Daniel was in the will of the Lord, the Bible tells us God brought him into the favor of this chief or commander. Daniel had access to the headman himself, not just the underlings. And this man, this chief of the eunuchs, commander of the officials, he expressed some sympathy for Daniel and his friends. He understood that they didn't want to defile themselves. He kind of understood. But notice, he did not give them any relief. He said, wait a minute. If I do this, you're going to look worse than the others and I endanger my head before the king. In other words, I'm looking out for myself here. I can't help you. But Daniel does not give up. We come to verse 11. And Daniel's going to make another pitch. He's going to say to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over these four men. Now notice, the man in verse 11 is not the same one mentioned in verse 10. These are two different people. Daniel got no relief from the headman, So the servant, the one who would bring him the food, was the one he appealed to. And that servant is the one who agreed to give him this 10-day test. Now remember, this is ten days out of three years. So how much damage can you do in ten days? Probably not much. Daniel was also very polite in proposing this. He was not angry, he was not belligerent. He said, I beseech you, please ask for help. And he proposed a solution. Not just, I don't want that. But he actually said, this is what I want you to give us, vegetables and water. A positive solution. That was something, I grew up in the 60s. And that was the age when you were supposed to be, us young people were going to tear everything down. We were going to get rid of and dismantle the military industrial complex. And my father used to look at me and say, so what do you propose in its place? He just kept telling me, you can't just tear things down. You've got to give a solution. And that's what Daniel did. His ten-day trial. Also implied when he says, as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So that's at the end of the ten days. So the implication here is that at the end of the ten days, whatever this servant decides to do, they will go along with. So that's very important too. But then you get to verse 14. It says they were tested for ten days and God is faithful because Daniel honored God and God is the one who made them appear better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's food. Think of what a witness that would be now to this pagan servant. Daniel could say, that's our God. Because humanly speaking, eating vegetables and water is not going to do much for you. But on the other hand, eating all the king's rich food and wine is going to make you look fatter and healthier. Fatter maybe, healthier I don't know. So God is faithful to them. And in verses 17-21 through 21, we see how God establishes them in Babylon. Now notice in verse 17 again the words, God gave them. Remember I said, all throughout this book you're going to see God in action. And it's going to be explicit. You don't have to read into it. Like in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned, but we see through the events that God must be working. In this book, there's no doubt, because over and over and over, it's going to be stated that God is the one who's doing things. All four of them receive wisdom in literature, science, the skills of this world. Now remember, they were to learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans. That was not really a threat to their Jewish heritage. I studied French. I learned a language. I studied their literature in college. Didn't make me French. I'm still American. And I don't remember most of it, so don't ask me. But, uh, but still, they were going along. They were learning what they were supposed to learn. Notice that Daniel alone was given a special gift. He was given the ability to understand visions and dreams. The others were not. They were given knowledge in things of this world. When the three years are up, they go before the king. And notice it's the the chief of the eunuchs, the commander, the head guy who presents them. He wasn't the guy who helped them out. He's never mentioned again. Gets no credit for what he did. But he was the one who helped them. They look better than the rest. In fact, it says ten times better. So Nebuchadnezzar selected them to be in his court. They were better than the magicians and astrologers. Well, magicians rely on illusion. Astrologers read the stars. But Daniel and his friends relied on the one true God. And the wisdom and understanding that God gave them was ten times greater than the Babylonians. And in the last verse, Daniel will record that he continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Remember, we know from other scriptures that King Cyrus was the one who would issue the decree to have the Jews return to Jerusalem, rebuild their temple, and reestablish their worship at the end of the 70 years. So we've seen all this stuff, so what exactly does that mean? How does that help us today? It was nice that in the sixth century BC we see this stuff, but I would suggest first of all, God is a living God. His working is not dependent upon anything man made, it's not dependent on time, it's not dependent on place. It's not dependent on any of earthly things. The temple had been destroyed. The instruments of worship carried away from it. And yet God continues to act in the affairs of men. So God is a living God. I would suggest that it's very important to guard our children and our grandchildren for those of us who have them. You know, the world is going to offer them all the comforts, all the good things. It's going to tell them they're the master of their own lives. It's going to tell them they have the power. God is just going to offer a life of service to Him. He's going to tell them you are not your own. He's going to tell them He is strong, they are weak. What they need to know is that eternity is real. And eternity with God is worth the price that you might have to pay in this world. Daniel and his friends had been well-versed in the ways of the Lord when they were children. If they had not been established, rooted, and grounded in his ways, then they would have had no way to stand against these things that were being proposed to them. Another thing we can remember is leaders propose solutions and persuade others to accept those solutions. Giving orders to be obeyed without question is a good philosophy when you're in the heat of battle. But it doesn't work so well in everyday life when we're dealing with our children, when we're dealing with each other, we're dealing with problems in this world, it's much better to suggest a solution and to persuade others that our solution will work. Much better to rely on the Holy Spirit who enables us and empowers us to live out the Lord's commands. See, he does put commands in his word that we're to obey without question. But he also puts in his word a wonderful explanation of all the benefits we'll receive, the greatest of which is eternity with him. We talked a little bit about perseverance and Daniel got no relief from his chief of the eunuchs. He didn't give up. He went to the next guy. And he got some help. We need to remember to keep praying. Keep knocking on doors. Keep looking. You keep knocking on doors, sooner or later one of them is going to open. And God's going to be the one opening it. Last but not least, we'll run down just a few character traits. And these apply throughout the ages. We see them in Daniel, but they apply before him and after him and even today. You want to have discernment. What's really happening? What's behind the circumstances? What's the objective? Daniel understood that they were trying to remove all his Jewish heritage. And he didn't let them do that. Resistance to evil is important. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James says. Do not stand by and watch it happen. You see something, you say something. You can voice disagreement. Sometimes thoughts and actions are not enough. You have to use words. I know we all like to live out our faith and say that, you know, people watch us, they see the Bible. And that's true. But sometimes you have to use words. We have to have courage in the face of physical danger. You know, in this chapter, it talked about the wrath of a king. But Daniel had to face the lion's den. His three friends had to face a fiery furnace. And what did they say? Our God can deliver us. He has the ability. But even if He chooses not to, we're not bowing down to your statue. I'm paraphrasing. But courage in the face of physical danger. Perseverance we've already talked about. If you don't succeed the first time, try something else. Determination. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart. He didn't wait to be confronted with this. He knew in his heart, deep down, it was a rooted belief that you couldn't pull out. You could pour in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, but you could not get rid of his deep down belief. He was determined. Weakness. You notice Daniel had the power of the one true living God behind everything he did. And yet when he made a proposal, he said, I beseech you, please, he submitted himself to this man. Meekness is not being timid. It's not being walked all over. It's humility from a position of strength. And last but not least, good sense. The trial period that Daniel proposed was not extensive. It was not a complicated thing. It was very simple. Give us this ten-day test, and whatever you think at the end, that's what we'll do. So there we have Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, a man of integrity of whom nothing negative is written in the scriptures. I'd like to close. I'm going to read the chorus from a song. This is a song I've heard used several times at vacation Bible schools, and Sunday school. We think of it as a kid's song. It was actually written by one of the great hymn writers, Philip Bliss doesn't make it into most of our hymnals. But I think the chorus speaks to what each one of us wants to be in this crazy world we live in today. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. That's a tall order. A lot of things are going on today. Wrong is right, right is wrong. Men are women and women are men. Crazy stuff. But God calls on us to dare to be a Daniel. And so that's our challenge for today. To dare to stand alone, To have our purpose firm and to make it known. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word which guides us. We thank You that we can stand upon the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank You, our Father, that as we read Your Word, the Holy Spirit within opens it up to us so that we can understand what it is that You want us to do so that You can speak to us through that Word. We thank You for the fellowship we enjoy here at Grace Gospel Chapel. We pray Your blessing upon those who would be here today but could not. We thank You for the food downstairs that sustains our bodies, that is blessed to our use and us to Your service. And we pray all things, give thanks for all things, and praise You. And we do it in the name of the only One who is worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.